Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, everybody. This is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week on the same podcast. Both are top shelf. They are exceptional at what they do. Jenny Rentis is a sports reporter for the New York Times. She focuses on enterprise and investigations. You have uh, read her work at that publication as well as Sports Illustrated and the MMQB. She's one of the uh, best investigative sports reporters out there. And and I imagine you have read her work on uh, Deshaun Watson. Lindsay Jones is a senior editor for The Ringer, where she helps lead their NFL coverage. Prior to that, we worked together at The Athletic, where she was a national NFL writer. Great hire by The Ringer there. Lindsay Jones's resume includes covering the NFL, USA Today, and the Denver Broncos for the Denver Post. Um, we start with what their current jobs are and how they do it, get into the challenge of reporting and writing on very tough pieces when it comes to the NFL. And uh, Jenny gets into a little bit of uh, of the difficulty and challenges of the kind of reporting that she does. Um, there's a conversation and talk about access with the NFL. Lindsey Jones is the president of the Pro Football Writers of America. So she has a lot of uh, insight into what access is like for NFL reporters. And then we send the second half of the podcast getting into what we think of the NFL this year, what the most interesting stories are. We all agree the Bills are the Super Bowl favorite, and we talk about why. We talk about Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers and what we're interested in them this year. Some of the teams that we think uh, really, really could emerge, uh, whether it's the Chargers. Lindsay is based in Denver, so she talks about the Broncos give us their scouting report. Jenny's based in New York, so she talks about where the two New York-based football teams are. Um, it's, a, it's a great conversation. Uh, we went long, but intentionally so, because there's sort of uh, two parts to this uh, podcast. Again, if you like these kind of conversations, please leave us a five-star review and a nice note wherever you listen to this podcast, whether it's Apple or Google or Stitcher. Uh, it makes a big difference. That's how this podcast continues. All right, coming up, Jenny Rentis of the New York Times and Lindsey Jones of The Ringer on the Sports Media Podcast. All right. As I said at the top, uh, I'm really uh, excited to bring in these two women who are at the top of their profession when it comes to NFL writing and NFL thinking. Uh, I'll give you their bios again. Jenny Rentis is a sports reporter for the New York Times. She focuses on enterprise and investigations. Prior to the New York Times, she worked at Sports Illustrated 
and the Monday morning quarterback for eight years as a national NFL writer. I was uh, pretty privileged to uh, work with her during that duration. And before that, she was at the Newark Star-Ledger. She covered the Giants and the Jets. And um, again, has uh, been doing incredible work for uh, the New York Times and Sports Illustrated when it comes to some of the harder stories to report, and we'll get into that. Lindsay Jones is a senior editor for The Ringer, where she helps lead their NFL coverage. Prior to that transition, she worked as a national NFL writer for The Athletic, where we worked together. Uh, Lindsay's been on this podcast before. She was a great colleague. And uh, I'm not going to lie, it still ticks me off that she's not working with us at The Athletic anymore, but great hire by The Ringer. Um, she Her resume includes working at USA Today, covering the NFL, as well as the Denver Post, where she covered the Denver Broncos. And Lindsay's also the current president of the Pro Football Writers so uh, Association, I think. I think is technically Pro Football Writers Association. She could correct me if I mangled that one. But I, I want to ask her about some of the sort of the things that exist when it comes to the covering the sport writ large in terms of access and where things are now. And very excited to be joined by Jenny Vrentis and Lindsay Jones. Welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, thanks, Richard. Have, uh, thanks for having us. I will say it is the Pro Football Writers of America, um, and Jenny is also on the board. So uh, you got the right, right people Jenny's here. on the board. All right, got the right people, but incre- mangled the uh, man- mangled the official title. We'll leave that because, uh, as I tell Patrick, I like to leave uh, the mistakes in the podcast makes it more honest. All right, I want to start. I'm going to start with you, Lindsay, and I'll direct. You guys can certainly um, play off each other. I'll direct questions to each of you just to make life a little bit easier for both of you, since we're we're in three different places. Um, Lindsay at the Ringer as a senior editor. Um, could you, for my listeners, like define what that job means? What does a senior editor at the ringer do? Sure. Well, you know, one of the, if you read the ringer, uh, if you are listen to our podcast network, you know, obviously really extensive podcast network, but you know, we cover a lot of sports. We do a lot of pop culture. Um, we don't do as much of the like granular day-to-day NFL coverage or sports coverage that we did when I was at the athletic where we were covering, you know, almost all of the professional sports teams, all of the NFL beats, all that sort of stuff. Um, so it's really just, just trying to decide what are the biggest stories um, of the day, of the month, uh, of the season. And, you know, I think one of you know my goals and our goals as a staff is to, you know, have really smart, informed, nuanced takes on the biggest stories that are going on, but then also, you know, try to set the agenda and what people should be talking about. Um, I, I, I was really excited to join The Ringer because of the staff of writers that are there, really, really smart um, people, really great football minds and thinkers and, you know, guys like Steven Ruiz and Ben Solak and uh, Kevin Clark and Nora Princiati. I mean, just these like really incredible younger writers and, you know, that they look at the NFL in a different way than I think a lot of people do. And so it's finding ways to, you know, tap into what they're curious about and, uh, and let them explore those ideas. And then just a ton of podcasting too, about all of the stuff that's going on in sports. So that's really my day to day now is figuring out the best stories to tell and the best ways to do that. Yeah. The, the one thing about the ringers writers and you, you are correct. That's not oversung. They are great. The ringer consistently has stories that are unique and original when it comes to the NFL, like just stuff I haven't seen elsewhere. And someone like Kevin Clark, who I know for a long time, he's been on this podcast. He's been doing that since his like Wall Street Journal days. He just like, there's stories that he does that are just different 
and interesting and that I haven't read before. So seems like a really good group. Okay, Jenny, what about you? What is your job um, this year when it comes to the NFL? Yeah, you know, hearing Lindsay talk about her job at the ringer and sort of picking the stories that are the biggest that make the biggest impact. I was just thinking about like, that's such a challenge. And that's something that I am still grappling with today. I mean, going from a beat to becoming an NFL writer, which or a national NFL writer, which I did, you know, at Sports Illustrated, but it's like, there's so many different directions to go in. Like, what do you pick to cover? I remember somebody describing it to me as like, you're kind of lying on like this waterbed and like, you kind of don't know which direction to go in. And like, there's so many different directions you can move. Um, and I still kind of find that um, to be a struggle too. Um, and I think coming to the times, the one thing that I learned was like, no matter how old you are, or no matter what your experience level is in this industry, that new job is always challenging. Like it's hard to transition. You're meeting a whole new staff of people. You're learning to build trust with a new group of editors and you're relearning what the expectations for that job are. So I've only been at the times, uh, I guess about nine months now. So that's kind of still a work in progress for me. Um, but hopefully it's the, the idea of that I try to do is, find stories that I can dig deeper into, uh, spend time on, you know, uh, I had started covering the Deshaun Watson story at Sports Illustrated. So that was a natural uh, story for me to keep digging on and continue on when I came to the times. But it's also just searching for things that maybe there's a lot more under the surface and hopefully taking the time to report those stories. And I, I'm grateful that I have that time. Uh, the times has been really good about, you know, if you want to take a week calling people in Houston, not knowing what you're going to find out, that's okay. That's often what it takes is, you know, a lot of phone calls that aren't returned to only get one that is returned. Um, so I guess, you know, it's just trying to find things out, even when you get a lot of <laughs> phone calls hung up or door slammed in your face or whatever the case may be. All right, Jenny. So I'm going to follow up with you. And one of the th one of the things that's interesting to me that is specific to what you do now is that you are assigned these investigative pieces, or at least attempting to perhaps do some long form um, reporting and writing that's going to take some time. At the same time, you have an interest in the NFL. You want to stay current with what's going on in the league. And I think there probably is some desire for you to just I don't know write a semi-game story or write a feature. So how do you navigate? How do you navigate between you have these potential investigative projects, like you said earlier, that take a long time. You have to knock on doors. People don't return your calls. The story may or may not pan out with doing what like those of us who do like day-to-day -day stuff have to do. How do you navigate those two worlds? Because I would say you're very unique in the, in the NFL media to actually have that kind of job where you might do both. Yeah, I think this is actually something that I've struggled with a lot over the last couple of years is finding the right balance. I think ideally you have a couple of different kinds of stories you're working on at any one time. Uh, an investigative story might fall through, not pan out. You may spend a lot of time going down a road that ends up being a total dead end. So I think it is good to have other stories that are more gettable, uh, that are are not reliant on, you know, uncovering something that you think might be there. Um, but I also think I I probably didn't realize over the last year and a half, you know, just how much of 
my brain space, the Deshaun Watson story took up. I think there were a lot of things that have happened NFL wise in the last year and a half that I, I maybe am not as up to date on that. I'm still trying to catch up on. Um, I think, you know, it wasn't maybe until the last month or so that I sort of started to realize that there were a lot of things I, I didn't know about, right. Or didn't know in, in the kind of detail that I would want to. Um, and then I, I think also a lot of NFL features are access driven. Um, and I think access is closing up, uh, in a lot of ways in the NFL. I mean, actually that's sort of why I started doing more enterprise and investigative reporting. Um, I had a couple bad experiences where you're basically begging for 15 minutes of somebody's time and for no reason at all, they don't give you that access. And then you have to do a write around, which is fine. Write around stories are fine. Sometimes write around stories can be really good or even better than getting access. But I think um, there are just some stories that you can't do if you don't have the access and um, it's always such a gamble if you're going to be able to get the access that you can get. Um, so I think uh, I, I've wanted to be less reliant on that. Um, but at the same time, you know, that does mean you may miss out on some really good stories. Let me let me follow up with you, Lindsay, on that um, as the head of the Pro Football Writers of America. Where do things stand right now when it comes to access and reporters in the NFL? So we're starting to get back to normal. And by normal, I mean kind of pre-pandemic access, kind of where we were in 2019, the 2019 season. Um, but Jenny is absolutely right that just like access in general has been shrinking as teams are taking more and more power uh, to like, you know, they're not closing the locker rooms anymore. They, ca they can't do that. The the, the locker rooms are back open. There's policies in place for that. But they're handing over more and more of these, you know, exclusive sit downs and the access to partners, right? Whether that's their broadcast partners uh, at, at the networks or their own team websites, right? I mean, it's to denverbroncos.com and atlantafalcons.com or the NFL network, those type of things. So, you know, they're less inclined to say, sure, USA Today, you can have 30 minutes with our quarterback, our head coach than they were, you know, 10 years ago. Um, you know, training camp is by far the best time to get that sort of access. And I think that's why you see, you know, Peter King is still going on these training camp tours and, you know, getting all this time that he can, he's able to get Kevin Clark from the ringer did a, you know, a large quarter uh, training camp tour. And I love his quarterback series that he does every year. And you, you, this is the time where you tend to get more access. You know, he got 45 minutes with Matt LaFleur. That's stuff that's not going to happen in November. You know, if you want to show up, if you want to go to Green Bay and work on a story, a feature story in the middle of the season, now you'll be able to work the locker room. That's something that we weren't able to do over the last couple of years. But, you know, the, the time that you get to spend extensive sit downs with the players like that, you're, you just don't have a ton of that. But um, we're very encouraged that locker rooms are back open. It was a really long process. And um, I remember I was uh, vice president of PFWA back in the spring of 2020 when the pandemic was, you know, just kind of starting back in, you know, March. And Bob Glauber was the president at the time, and he kind of knew that I would be following him. And so there were some, there were some conference calls that were starting. And so there was a conference, it was, it was right when Major League Baseball announced that they were going to close their clubhouses um, during spring training. So this was like before the NBA had shut down. And 
the officers or some of like the presidents of the various writers associations, hockey, major league baseball or baseball writers, NBA writers, APSC, PFWA, all kind of gotten on a conference call because we had this panic that was like, once these doors are shut, they're not going to reopen. And we understood during the pandemic why they kind of shut everything down, right? We got it. We were in this unprecedented public health emergency, a global pandemic that was going on, but we were trying to kind of look and say, this is going to impact how we do our jobs for a really long time. And, you know, there were, there was a while that we weren't sure if that was ever going to, going to happen, right? That we were going to get these locker room doors back open. And we're now here. I mean, it's helpful. Major League Baseball has been open. Their clubhouses all season. Um, NFL locker rooms, a couple opened this spring during OTAs. And um, they were all open post-game starting in the preseason. And then now starting this week, which is week one, we're back into the regular season access rules, which has three full days of locker room access during the week, 45 minutes uh, for beat writers. And then post-game um, Thursday, Sunday, Monday, uh, that, that stuff will all be happening. So it's been really encouraging. You've already been able to see it in the NFL coverage. Uh, that you know the, the return to better access, like you're already seeing the results of that. Beat writers are being able to tell different stories, better stories than they were doing over the last couple of years. Because I, I'm really proud of the work that our colleagues did over the last couple of years, where you know you kind of had to fake it almost. I mean, you weren't making up interviews. I mean, I don't want to say when I say fake it, I don't want to be misinterpreted there. But you kind of had to write around the the access that you weren't getting. You were having to do it off of Zoom calls or a lot of other creative ways to get access. But now you have that chance to kind of build these relationships or rebuild relationships um, with players, especially that you just weren't able to do over the last couple of seasons. So that's really where we are right now. And I'm just really looking forward to the work that all of our, you know, sports journalism colleagues and specifically in the NFL are able to do. I mean, just think about, you know, tonight, Thursday, and I don't know exactly when this pod is going to post, but none of us were in the locker room. Jenny and I were at the Super Bowl at SoFi Stadium in February, but we weren't in that post-game locker room. When that game ended, we were all in these like, you know, corridors below the stadium. And it was like, we were 15 feet away from Aaron Donald and Cooper Cup. And you're trying to shout these questions and you got two or three minutes. I mean, think of how much, how many, how much better the stories would have been that night if we'd been able to like be in the locker room. Post-game Super Bowl locker room access is incredible. And it's like a kind of a, a secret that a lot of people don't really know about. They don't know that you can actually go in the locker room after the Super Bowl, generally in the pre-pandemic era. So I'm just really excited for, you know, people like, you know, Jordan Rodrigue and, you know, the, the writers in Buffalo to be able to be in the locker room tonight after that game and be able to just, you know, get that additional level of news and context and, um, you know, the, the quotes and the insights that you can get there that we weren't getting over the last two years. Jenny, I know you. Uh, I'll let the listeners know we're taping this uh, on the day of the, the regular season opener, uh, September eighth. Uh, Bills Rams. You'll know the result by the time uh, you listen to this. In fact, you'll know the results of all the Sunday games by the time you listen to this. But Jenny, you wanted to add something to that? No, I just wanted to say that Lindsay has done a tremendous job as the president of the PFWA. I mean, it's a thankless job. It's something that she volunteers her time to do, but really fighting for getting reporters back in locker rooms and making sure that that was the starting point. The starting point was that we would be back to pre-pandemic access and the access restrictions that I was talking about and that Lindsay talked about, you know, 
uh, team run websites and league owned networks, the way you kind of equalize that is by getting back in the locker rooms. And that's why it was so important so that reporters can develop relationships. You can have your own relationships with players. And also players can say things that maybe aren't team sanctioned, right? It's also about like allowing them to have a direct voice, direct, you know, interaction with the media um, that you don't really get in when everything is in a zoom or everything is going through the team, things like that. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that the, the Bronco, I live in Denver and the Broncos invited me to come in and talk to their rookie class earlier this summer um, during their rookie orientation about media and what the locker room is going to be like, because, you know, it's not just this rookie class that's coming in. It's three whole classes worth now, basically of players who have never had um, a locker room, an open locker room setting. And one of the things that I told those guys, because look, they were coming they didn't have, they had pandemic access when they were in college too. And college access is restrictive to begin with. And then the pandemic really even made it even more restrictive. And one of the things that I've talked to people at the league and the NFLPA about, um, and now I've kind of addressed to players directly is that over the last years, I mean, how many players did we actually hear from? Um, We were doing a lot of counting talking to beat writers around the country last year, like who actually is being made available? Who are you requesting? Um, how many of those requests are being granted? How many are these one-on-one, one-on-one interviews that you're, you're requesting? And in most cases, you know, there, there were some teams that tried really, really hard and did a, as good a job as they could under these um, difficult circumstances. And then there were some teams that basically denied almost everything um, in terms of one-on-ones. They really got to set the agenda of who was coming to the podium. And it was really looking at like how many players never actually got their voices heard and their own stories told or their input about what happened in games from offensive linemen to the number three was receiver, backup quarterbacks, you know, kickers, you know, all of these guys who have real impact on the games and actually, and, and have really interesting stories of their own to tell were just kind of ignored for two years. And that's not for lack of trying on the media standpoint. I know there were, I I got the list. The beat writers would send me the list of players that they were requesting and they were being denied for whatever reason, because the PR staffs didn't have the bandwidth or they just didn't see the value in bringing guys in to, to do these interviews. And now having the locker room open, we get to determine kind of what we want to ask and who we want to talk to. And look, players might not want to talk all the time. They don't have to, they're required, um, they are required to talk if requested, but they don't have to do it every single day. But now those guys are going to get to to have their input and you know talk about what happened on that third down, or you know talk about their teammates or their charity work and all that sort of stuff that just didn't happen over the last couple seasons. Jenny, I want to um, I want to just spend at least one part of this podcast on the challenges of reporting and writing of some of the harder pieces that. Uh, exists in the space, of, of which um, you have obviously done significant work. On June 7th, the New York Times publishes your piece. Title is How the Texans and a Spa Enabled Deshaun Watson's Troubling Behavior. The subhead there is Watson met at least 66 women for massages over a 17-month period, far more than previously known. He had help from the Houston Texans, including non-disclosure agreements in making appointments. Um, some of the women who spoke for that piece spoke publicly to, for the first time to you. So I understand this is a very broad question, um, but I want to ask it, like, how difficult is this reporting? I, I think it would be valuable to people who are listening to this, who are not in the, the business of journalism or the business of reporting, to just get an idea of, like, how this comes to be and how this kind of reporting takes shape. Yeah. I mean, 
There are definitely parts that are difficult when you talk to people who have experienced trauma. Um, I think that's a difficult conversation. I, I've definitely gone to trainings on how to do those interviews, how to you know not re-traumatize somebody. Um, I think those are always difficult um, conversations to navigate. Um, and I also think you know the process of putting out the story, you know, is is labored, right? You are getting corroborating information. You're checking for contemporaneous witnesses, you know, what message exchanges can you have all of the checkpoints that you need to be able to publish any of these accounts. Um, but on the flip side, like there is sort of just a simplicity to it. I, I think with the Deshaun Watson story, um, it was just reaching out to people that maybe no one wanted to talk to. Right. I mean, I think it was just an effort to hear from massage therapists who were in the room with Deshaun Watson. So, uh, I just DM'd a lot of women on Instagram. That's where many women who work in massage therapy advertise their businesses. That's how they get clients. Uh, and that's how Deshaun Watson found them uh, in most cases. So I figured, well, I, I can find them the same way um, and just started sending messages. Uh, you know, I tried to be sensitive. I, a lot of people didn't want to talk to me. A lot of people didn't respond. Um, but some people did respond and said, hey, no one's ever reached out to me before, or I have an experience that I really want to share. Um, and so, you know, I think with this story, it was just a reminder that like cold calls do work. Um, I think it there is some kind of hesitancy that we all have of just like cold calling a person or a cold reach out. Um, but at the same time, I try to remind myself that like there may be somebody on the other side that really wants to share their experience and just hasn't had the opportunity. And I think in this case, you know, the same power imbalance that was present in the massage room between a high profile player and, you know, relatively anonymous massage therapist who's, you know, just trying to make her small business work. I think that existed in the media coverage as well, you know. Deshaun Watson is a prominent franchise quarterback. He's someone that we expect will be in the league for a long time. He's represented by a very powerful agent. Um, and, you know, if you are covering the NFL, there's a lot of gatekeepers for access, right? And so there is an incentive to uh, be friendly to those gatekeepers and maybe a disincentive to reaching out to a massage therapist to is not necessarily going to be a, a longtime source for you if you're an NFL insider, right? Um, so I think it just kind of started at a point of, of just like a very simple reach out. And I don't think that required any particular skill. It was just sort of being encouraged to do it. You know, I started at Sports Illustrated uh, covering the story. My editor at the time, Gary Gramling, we were deciding what to do and how we should handle the story. And, you know, he encouraged me to take the step and that sort of opened up a door. And then, you know, once you get someone to share their story and trust you, I think that helps other people also be willing to talk to you as well. All right. Thank you for answering that, Jenny. Um, Lindsay, I want to follow up with you on a, sort of something similar. Um, you've written about the NFL for a long time and you've, you've probably done more columns than Jenny has, I, I like sort of uh, opinion pieces, if you want to sort of frame it under that, you know, on some of these issues of uh, of criminality or teams not taking uh, due diligence seriously. So I wanted to ask, like, from your perspective, um, whether it's Deshaun Watson or uh, Matt Arisa, who was uh, the, the punter who was just cut from the Bills, um, 
it's very easy to be a cynic um, when it comes to disbelieving professional sports teams, quite frankly, particularly in the NFL when when they say they do due diligence on players. Um, we've just sort of seen too many times where that might necessarily be the case. So, you know, what when you're writing about this stuff and when you're thinking about this stuff, so it's sort of a two-part question. One, where does your believability stand when it comes to the NFL in terms of doing background checks? And then secondly, when writing about this, um, what do you think about when, you know, maybe you do a column that says, like, this team really just, like, they're not telling the truth. They're lying here or they're um, – they're not being straight with their fans. How do you approach that? those kind of things? Sure. I mean, the, it, it's something that I, it, it took me a long time, I think, in my career to get to a point where I was comfortable writing those sorts of columns. Um, you know, when I was at USA Today, I was certainly younger, you know, by age-wise, I was younger in my career. And I was very much like, I am a news reporter. I am reporting on what's going on here. And in 2014, I was... Um, on our national, or I was on our NFL desk there. And so I ended up doing a lot of the kind of the granular reporting on everything that was going on with Ray Rice and Greg Hardy and the Adrian Peterson allegations. And then really just like the the unglamorous stuff, the machinations of the collective bargaining agreement and the personal uh, the personal conduct policy. And But in that reporting, I spent a lot of time talking to domestic violence experts and sexual assault experts and um, academics and, you know, really kind of learning what all of this is and why the pers- uh, the legal justice or uh, the, sorry, the law enforcement and our criminal justice system has such a hard time um, adequately handling these sort of cases and talking to sociologists and all of that sort of stuff. And that reporting and kind of just that knowledge base from eight to 10 years ago. Um, It actually even goes back farther than that. My first kind of story, big story that I did when I was at the Denver Post was um, about Brandon Marshall and a lot of domestic violence um, allegations and arrests that he had in his past there. So I really started reporting on this stuff back in 2008. Um, But it was really kind of just like years and years of reporting that got me to a point that when Deshaun Watson, for example, is happening, um, I felt comfortable that like I could write more of like an opinion because I wasn't just throwing out like hot takes about this is the way that this, that the league works. Um, I have a very deep understanding of the personal conduct policy. Um, I've read it so many times um, to the point that like, you know, when I was at the athletic, our colleagues would slack me all the time and just say like, well, what does this mean? What exactly is the commissioner's exempt list? And so, gosh, it felt like every couple months I would write an explainer about like, well, this is what the commissioner's exempt list is. And this is why the NFL is not using it right now. I did write a column last fall that said the NFL needs to, you know, they're trying to apply precedent to an unprecedented situation. And this is why they need to use the commissioner's exemplist right now and take this off of, away from the teams. Um, because I knew exactly what every line of the personal conduct policy was. Um, so that's kind of, I think, how I got myself to that point where, you know, I could, I, I, I could write with some authority and um, kind of like a credibility, I think, in, in these cases. And then the other part of it is like, we just, through that reporting, we just have years and years worth of evidence of teams not doing the due diligence, right? And, you know, maybe we're to a point now that there's people like Jenny, um, the reporting that you've been doing that are, you know, we're able to 
maybe take a more critical look at when teams say like, oh yeah, we're, we, we did our due diligence and we, we vetted this and to say, wait, what does that mean? Like what, describe to me what your due diligence was. And I've honestly never seen a case where they have a good answer for that. Um, dating back for years. I mean, even in small, you know, small cases, right? It's not just when it's Deshaun Watson and $230 million. I remember a situation a few years ago where the Broncos signed an undrafted rookie, you know, a, a rookie free agent who had not played at the University of Tennessee or had been kicked off of the team at University of Tennessee because there were um rape allegations. He had actually gone to trial. He went through an entire trial. And then very shortly after he was acquitted at trial, the Broncos signed him. He ended up playing for a couple of years for them. Um, and right after he was signed, I remember having, he had a, John Elway had a press conference. And I remember talking to a bunch of people with the team before the press conference and saying, well, like, what did you do? You know, how did you investigate this guy? What did you look at? And they kind of knew, everybody knew that I was going to be the one to ask John Elway what was your vetting process? And he kind of said, oh, you know, we did our homework and we, we, we talked to some people. And that was it. They, know, they didn't talk to any of the victims. They didn't talk to the victims' lawyers. I don't think they even went into like trial transcripts to look at like what the actual testimony was. Literally their homework that they did was they asked the guys, um, college coaches and some teammates, is this a good guy? Do you like this guy? Is he a good teammate? That's what happens every single time. We have years and years and years worth of evidence. And this is what teams do. They find out the information that they want to find out. Um, the reporting that Jenny has done on Deshaun Watson shows how much information is out there if you are willing to do the work, if you're willing to send just one DM and the, the teams in the league and honestly, even the league's investigators. You know, Jenny's reporting showed just maybe not, uh, you revealed a lot about the NFL's own investigation. Um, you know, they're, they're just not equipped and honestly not that interested in doing the work. Um, so I know that was a really long roundabout answer to get to kind of where we're no, at right now, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, right? I mean, you never want to write like a hot take column about any of this stuff. I think if you're writing about um, sexual violence, domestic violence, players who have been accused of any sort of crime, you want to have your facts straight. And, and sometimes that's leaning on the really credible reporting that, that somebody like Jenny has done. Um, and sometimes that's doing the work yourself to go through every single case of you know, a few years ago, I, was, I wanted to find out how does, how does the league actually discipline players that have been investigated? Um, how many players have actually been suspended six games, which is the, the, the baseline suspension for um, these sorts of violent offenses. And, you know, it's, it's, it's tedious work sometimes, but you have to do it, but that will give you the, the background that you need to be able to kind of drop the hammer on the league or a team or a player if you need to. I want to, uh, we're, we'll spend the second half of this podcast uh, on like um, far more like uh, game story type of issues and like who we think is going to win and stuff like that. So, but I have one or two more here. Um, you know, recently like, uh, in the athletic, I led a column where I posed the question: like, could a could a media rights holder talking about really television partners here? Can they and are they critical of ownership? And how far will or would they be willing to go? And I asked Sean McManus, he's the chairman of uh, CBS Sports, this, and he actually gave me a really fair answer about this, saying that like we don't let our uh, broadcasters we we don't um, uh, we don't tell them what to say or what not to say. If there was a story, we would feel comfortable doing it. We're not looking to dig up anything on the owners, but 
Um, it's not something we would avoid. I feel like he gave the best answer he possibly could. And this is a guy actually with news background. That said, the reality is that I never hear the game partners ever criticize ownership. Not certainly anything with depth and uh, not anything of, uh, of news significance. You never hear them criticize Dan Snyder. Uh, you're not going to, I don't think, hear them really go deep into Stephen Ross and, and, and that case and Stan Kroenke and moving from St. Louis and, um, and certainly the Haslam. So that's my sort of premise on this. Now, I'm filibustering here, Jenny, because it's a long question for you, and I'm not going to really ask this elegantly. I, I don't want to be sort of hypocritical here in the sense that, like, I do think the television partners will never criticize ownership. I think they're partners. They all are making money together. They're all, they're all at the same party. That said, a lot of times I think all of us, and I'll put myself in this, there's like a cognitive dissonance when um, it comes to the NFL because it's like we love the game. It's so much fun to watch. It's the, it's the most important game in the United States un, unquestionably. All of us have made in some ways a living on it, so we financially benefited from the league. Um, and so by being part of the system, I sometimes think like am I complicit? like on a small level because I'm writing about it. Even if, um, and I, like in your case, Jenny, you're, you're really covering like hard news here and doing important work. But all, Lindsay, myself, and you were all in the business in some way of writing about the NFL and thus um, benefiting from it. So I just, I don't know. I, I don't really have a really elegant question here, but I just wanted to ask, if, is that something you ever sort of think about? And like, yeah, while I've, sort of writing about this stuff at the same time all of it you cannot not necessarily you're reporting on Deshaun Watson but the coverage of the NFL ultimately promotes the NFL and ultimately just makes the NFL more popular and I think about like that sometimes I'm like you know if I really dislike this I would just walk away and like become a shoe salesman or something like then I'm not promoting the NFL so I don't know I again I, I knew I wasn't going to ask this question with elegance but I wonder if you think about like sort of that at all yeah, I've definitely thought about that a lot through the years. Uh, I think the reality is we're covering the NFL because it's a you know a major cultural institution, right? It's like a major part of American society. So uh, that's how I see it. Um, but I also think when you're covering it, it's important to make an effort to cover all of it and to cover it like we would any other institution, right? Like if you're a business reporter covering a major business and covering the CEOs and everything that comes with that, or, you know, whatever field of journalism you may be in, I think you have to take the same critical eye towards covering the league. Um, and uh, I think that's kind of how I landed at, you know, feeling okay with this because oh, there are times when I'm at, you know, major NFL events and you feel a little uncomfortable with the pomp and circumstance. I think you see um, how the force of the NFL can obscure bad behaviors, you know, even uh, um, allow bad behaviors to continue. Right. I mean, we see this all the time. And so I view it as we're reporters covering a cultural institution, the good and the bad of it. And I think all of it is Important. But I think to the point you made earlier, I think the difference is there are a lot of people that are in it as like entertainment people rather than journalists. Um, 
And so for me, it was really important to continue to work for outlets that don't have business entanglements from the league. Because I think when you work for an outlet that has a business entanglement for the league, then you do fall into the category of promoting the sport without being critical, without being allowed to have that critical eye. Um, And I think there's fewer and fewer outlets that are free of business entanglements with the league. And I think that is why the coverage has shifted so much, right? I mean, I think... um, there are fewer outlets that have resources devoted to covering the league critically. And, you know, we've seen private equity gut newspapers across the country. That means newspapers, which are and have always been these independent outlets, now have less resources. So if you work for a national outlet that does not have business ties to the league, then you almost have more of a responsibility to cover it critically because there's so few places that have the ability to do so. Yeah, Jenny, that's a great answer. It's probably one of the better answers I've heard of that. Lindsay, I'll let you weigh in, but it is something I think about because, again, when I'm writing about ESPN or NBC or CBS, like I don't want to come off like a hypocrite because, like, the reality is, like, the athletic has uh, a lot of financial stake when it comes to the NFL. They have partnerships with betting places, right? And that obviously the NFL plays a major role in that. Um, there will always be places, like Jenny said, like I feel like the New York Times and the Washington Post in particular will probably always have some kind of independence and put the resources into covering it. But, you know, I do think if you work for a rights holder like ESPN, if you're working for like calling like the Rams or the Cowboys games, you in some way have made a, how do I phrase it? I don't, you're not, complicit might be too strong, but you're part, you've, you've at least acknowledged that and you're okay with being part of the infrastructure of the promotion. But, but how do you see it? Because I think it is, it's like that expression, like so-and-so is too big to fail. And in many ways, the NFL has in many ways become like the Goldman Sachs of the world and these places like that, that like nothing really can sort of take them down and you almost have to make a decision almost on an individual basis as to how you're going to write about it, how you're going to talk about it and, and how you're going to approach the league. Yeah. I mean, it's really complicated too. And I think a lot of it is on kind of us as, you know, as leaders in the NFL media space. And, you know, and I do want to say there are people who do work for like team or, you know, league owned or league entangled as Jenny to use, to use Jenny's phrasing. I think that, um, you know, do a really good job of trying to hold, ownership and the league to account. I mean, Jim Trotter from NFL Network. I mean, if you guys remember the way that he phrased his questions to Roger Goodell at the Super Bowl. Yeah. Chris, he's been on he's this incredible. podcast I mean, many times. You know. Yeah, he's an ama- he's amazing. Um, yeah, Jenny and I have worked with him. And yeah, great. but I mean, but we do see, we, you, know, you don't see that like at large across the, the kind of the team owned, you know, media networks and those sorts of things. Um, but, you know, I mean, yeah, we, I mean, Jenny, like we talk to young reporters all the time or kids that are coming out of college that want to cover the NFL. And look, everybody wants to cover the NFL. We, we have a mentorship program at the PFWA and, you know, it's because it seems really glamorous, right? The NFL is fun and it's exciting and you want to go to the Super Bowl and you, you um, want to go to these big games and stuff. Um, but I think the number of people who are willing to do kind of the, the less glamorous reporting and that sort of the, the, the harder sides of covering these leagues. I, I don't know if there's as many of those young reporters out there. I know they're out there, but um, you have to know that if you want to kind of cover the league, that that is part of it. And I think there's a lot of outlets um, who, you know, you can really focus on like 
football, right? You know, like the draft complex or fantasy football or sports betting. And you can really get in that lane of like, this is all I do. I watch film. I write about, you know, I, I, I'm a scheme guy or I'm going to do just fantasy stuff. Um, and then all of a sudden you have Deshaun Watson, for example, and you don't know how to talk about it. You don't know how to write about it, but all of a sudden, but like, you can't, you, you can't unlink it, right? You can't have a fantasy football column about quarterbacks and quarterback rankings and just talk about Deshaun Watson without everything else. But a lot of places are trying to do that. And there's a lot of reporters who, um, or football analysts and stuff who are just like, all they do is football. I'm just going to be in my little football box. And then you try to push the the other stuff onto other people. And Right. Is it? I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, but I want you to follow up with this. Like, isn't there more of a financial incentive though in the world today to be in that other yeah. box, like to be the but, next Schefter or Rappaport yeah. or to be the next uh, Matthew Barry or uh, you know pick who you think is the best uh, all twenty two like draft um, analysis yeah. in the media? Like the the financial yeah. incentive, in my opinion, the financial incentives to become that are so much more higher than the financial incentives to be the next Jenny Reckless. Yeah, you agree? I, I think so. I mean, I don't know what Jenny makes, but I can imagine, I, I, I know what I make. And so I can imagine that we're, we're right. not in the, uh, the, the Adam Schefter uh, price range here. And I know what Schefter makes. You're not. <laughs> very clearly am not. Right. Um, that right. was not part of my decision to leave uh, the athletic to go to the ringer. They were not backing up uh, the truck for Adam Schefter kind yeah. of money there. But, you know, you, you really kind of just have to, you know, make a decision about like, I, th- I think covering sports, it's not just about sports. And if you think it's going to be, um, you know, you're just not going to be a very well-rounded journalist, I think. And, um, you know, hopefully, you know, we want to impress, I mean, go back and listen to what Jenny was saying. If you're listening to this podcast, if you're a young, a young journalist and aspiring NFL writer, go back and listen to what Jenny was saying about the reporting side, about, you know, sending the DMs, about getting the police reports, about reaching out to people, because that doesn't happen nearly enough, where I think you, you know how to actually do that type of reporting that can be impactful. You know, you think that covering the NFL is like, oh, I can watch film. I can watch football. I can tell you like the difference between cover two and cover three and uh, talk about the different route trees and stuff. Like, like a lot of people can do that, but very few people can do what Jenny does um, or hopefully, you know, what I do, you know, there, you can't just necessarily do that. And you need any, once you get your access to, you can go ask the questions of people and hold them to account. So I think it's on us as you know, the media, the sports media business, specifically as NFL media. Now I look at it as kind of one of my roles as an editor who's determining like who's going to be writing these stories, how we're going to attach, you know, attack our coverage um, to be making sure that we're taking a critical look. And, you know, we can love football, right? I mean, you could like the games are excited. I'm jacked up to watch week one. Like there's so many exciting storylines and we're going to get into some of that stuff here. Um, But if we're not taking a critical look and holding these really powerful institutions to account, whether that's, you know, Dan Snyder or Stephen Ross or Deshaun Watson or the league as a whole, um, we're failing our responsibilities as journalists. Do you, can I ask it? Do you, do either of you guys uh, vote for the hall of fame? Um, I, I am now, yeah, I am a selector now. Okay. Jenny, not you. Um, at the times we're not allowed to vote. Oh, you're right. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad Lindsay, I, uh, I didn't know that, uh, and I figured there should be more women in that room. Regardless, I, it seems like it's always been kind of a uh, 
male yeah bogey. i think there's three i think out of 54 like, or something uh 49 49 okay yeah Th- those are not good numbers last but, year was my first year in. okay so there's a spot um every the the hall of fame has a spot for the president of pfwa on the selector oh, cool. okay. panel so uh last year was my first year and i hope i'm not speaking out of turn i believe i'll be staying on after my term ends but we'll yeah. have to see we'll get those guys to be transparent let's let's <laughs> let's see those votes um and i think that conversation that you were just having I, I think it's a really important one so we're bargaining a new contract right now with the new york times and one of our um recent actions was a pack the inbox action more than 300 people in our newsroom were sending emails um you know asking for a, a better wage discounter from the company and one thing that stood out in the emails there was one line that has really stuck with me and someone was talking about how there's a proud history of public service in their family and that they see journalism as part of a public service and it was so clear from these emails that these journalists who spent years decades at the times like they're not doing it to get rich right they're doing it to be provide a public service to readers and i think sp- Sports journalism is a subset of journalism, but the same principles should apply. Um, and I think it doesn't always, it's, that's not always the case because it is sort of in the entertainment realm. Um, but I try to keep that in mind. And those emails were inspiring to me to remember like, yes, like we are serving the readers, we are serving the public and the information that we are bringing to the public is important in terms of how we view society and how we view sports leagues and being able to see the good and the bad together. Like that is a service to the public. Um, so when you were talking about that, it just kind of um, reminded me of that and something that I've been trying to keep in mind. Yeah. I mean, and then, you know, and again, when it comes to sort of the profession, the New York times is still at the high end of the salary spectrum, even though they, the, the, the rank and file should be getting raises for sure. And I'm glad you're part of that union, Jenny. Um, and Lindsay, to your point, like just the, you know, as I mentioned before, like the incentives are massive. Not everybody's going to be Adam Schefter and make, you know, eight to $10 million a year. Like that, that, that is an outlier. And just like, but like, if, if you are like a diehard NFL fan and you, and you get into like the Kimberly Martin or, uh, Jeff Darlington position, like that is a significant difference in salary than the person who's, um, uh, you know, covering the Jacksonville Jaguars at the local Jacksonville paper. Like that's, these are, and so your incentive is, you know, if your finances are part of your incentive, there's only way to go. So I know what Jenny's talking about in terms of seeing it as a, um, as a public service. And let me just say, Jenny, cause I'm just going to use this into, as we sort of segue into uh, uh, sort of what we think about the league this year. I, I still am not over Lindsey Jones not being at the Athletic. Um, again, this podcast is not part of the Athletic. I am very happy to work at the Athletic. They have treated me great. I really appreciate uh, being there. I think I've worked hard for them, so I feel like it's an even trade. That said, we should have figured out a way to keep Lindsey Jones. You just you cannot let go of premium talent, especially premium talent who uh, want to morph from writing to editing. God, I have no idea why you want to do that, uh, Lindsey. It seems to be insane to me. As someone who, wants, who does never wants to manage any human being, that said, it, it bums me out. But the Ringer has made a great hire, and uh, you know that's my only speech on that. But uh, uh, she was an awesome colleague, and I, I really, in all sincerity, wish uh, she was there. And if anybody's listening from the Athletic, I'm being truthful and transparent and honest, and you at least have to respect that. Well, that's that's very kind of you, Richard. I will say, I mean, I love the Athletic, and I hope the Athletic 
succeeds for many, many, many years. And um, I definitely left on good terms when my contract was up, um, kind of was able to, you know, really try something new. I feel very like professionally rejuvenated awesome. right now, which is, um, you know, which is kind of excited, I, exciting. And, um, you know, a lot of it was, yeah, like wanting to, like I mentioned, like having a larger role in like kind of shaping overall coverage beyond kind of my own lane and what I was writing, but kind of informing um, everything that we were doing and working with, uh, working with younger writers. But um, I also have a six-year-old and traveling was getting really, really hard on her and my family. And um, I'm going to have a little FOMO this week when, uh, you know, the Thursday night game in LA not being there, but in general, like it was, it was definitely a lifestyle decision as, as well as a, big professional leap. Like I very much felt like I was standing on you know, the edge of a high dive going, I, I hope I can do this and we'll see. I hope my, my new bosses at the ringer would say that we're succeeding so far, but I'm, I'm um, sure it, was, it was a, you know, a big professional leap, but also something that was really important for um, me and my family. All right. Well. So if the athletic manager is listening to this, when my contract's up, use that salary to get Lindsay Jones back, make this, <laughs> make a smart move for your, uh, for your, for your, your, your place. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy60. All right. Let's move on to um, let's move on to the league this year. I um, I have a very big fondness for um, the city of Buffalo. I went to undergraduate there. I lived there for seven years. I know. Um, I feel like I have a really good sense, even though it's been a long time since I lived there, of what that franchise means to that city. Um, it, it really is, honestly, the religion and church of Buffalo are the Buffalo Bills. They are the Vegas favorites, Jenny, for the first time in a long time. It seems like they have um, everything in place to make a Super Bowl run. At the same time, <laughs> the franchise is snake bitten when it comes to sort of either winning a Super Bowl or taking that final step. I think they're the best team in football right now on paper. When uh, I know you did some scouting reports for the New York Times and you did a couple of the AFC teams I saw. Um, what do you make of the Bills? And in your opinion, are they the preseason favorites? For whatever that means, obviously, uh, you know, notwithstanding injuries, et cetera. Yeah, Richard, this is actually the first year in several that I haven't picked a Super Bowl winner. We used to do the whole bracket at Sports Illustrated. So I'm feeling a little bit uh, left out of, of not making <laughs> a pick this year. But if I had to have made a pick, the Bills would have definitely been one of the three or four teams I would have considered. I mean, they're coming off a heartbreaking end to last season, obviously. So you do wonder how a team responds when that happens, but they clearly have found the right quarterback for the team, the kind of quarterback that you can win a championship with. And that is somebody that can change the game in an instant. Right. And we saw he and Patrick Mahomes go toe to toe in that divisional round. And 
So you know that you have that player. Um, and obviously that game could have gone either way and, and maybe the rest of their season. Um, but I guess, you know, the Matt Ariza situation happening on the eve of the season, I think was a reminder of how teams that are close are kind of willing to do what it takes to get that championship. I mean, it was just a punter. Yes, but it clearly was, you know, this well sought after punter and somebody that they wanted to keep on their roster, despite first learning about the accusations against him a month earlier. Um, and so it's hard to talk about the bills without talking about that because, you know, um, we've heard a lot from the team that they, you know, value culture and that culture is important to them. Um, and, they sort of stumbled their way through the press conference. You know, when they released Ariza, the only thing that had changed was that it was now publicly out there. And they said they were yep. still going through their due diligence um, and that their investigation wasn't concluded. But everything that was in that lawsuit could have been obtained by speaking to the lawyer and to the victim in depth, right? There wasn't anything that they weren't able to get on their own in the previous few weeks. Um, so they clearly know that they're close as a team and are clearly willing to do whatever it takes to get there. And I think that's the cynicism that we see in today's NFL. Lindsay, I know I saw the uh, sort of the ringers uh, picks and you said you tried really hard to pick a team other than the betting favor right now, picking any uh, picking against the bills basically feels foolish. My, um, you know, again, I certainly, I would never consider myself an NFL reporter like you two, but I feel like for the bills, if, they can figure out over the first couple of weeks who plays for Tredavious White. It's very important for them, their corner. And he comes back healthy. Presuming no big star gets hurt, I, I feel like they're set at pretty much every position. So I would make them the preseason favorite. That said, the AFC is a monster. Like, yeah. I, 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 and I, I'm, I have a rooting interest here. I love the city of Buffalo, and I would like the Bills to win for the city. That said, like last year, it really feels like home field advantage for them is an absolute must in the playoffs. Like I feel like they have to get that um, that first uh, that first seed because like yeah, the Chargers they, they don't want to go to Kansas yeah. City again. Chargers scare me. The Chiefs scare me. Like those games in January at those places, like anything can happen. But do you agree, if nothing else, that like at least at the moment preseason Bills are the favorite and they're the ones to beat? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense why they're the betting favorite. I mean, if you're just looking at top to bottom, one through, I guess, let's take the punter situation out of it, one through 52 yeah. on the roster. Right. And look, the guy that they signed, they signed Sam Martin, who was yeah. the Broncos punter of the last NFL couple of years. Yeah exactly. yeah, exactly. Quality NFL punter. Um, so I think they'll be fine at that position. They no longer have, you know, necessarily like a, you know, a guy who can literally punt at 80 yards, but they also don't have an accused rapist on their team anymore. So that's a win, right? They didn't need to do all of that for, you know, a guy who impacts only a small percentage of plays and a small percentage of games, uh, which was one of the odd parts of this, like why they were going to this great a length. Like, look, the Brown, not to take this back to a Deshaun Watson situation, but like you can understand why Jimmy Haslam would make this really like bargain with the devil for Deshaun Watson, a guy who you think can literally get you to a Super Bowl. It makes less sense why the Bills would go to the, that length to keep somebody that they knew was credibly accused of, um, of rape when he's a rookie punter. So anyways, um, 
but to get back to the to get back to the bills, yeah, I mean, I think they've done a really just smart job of team building. And so, you know, you look at like progression of how Josh Allen has developed and how they have like year by year addressed what they needed to to do to build the team around Josh Allen. Um, of course, all of this, I think, hinges on Josh Allen continuing to develop and ascend and not have any sort of regression. I mean, there were there were times early last year where there was like an, oh, God, what happened to Josh Allen? Is he not as good as he was before? Right. Um, but then the way that he closed last season, I mean, he played literally two perfect playoff games, the, the, the game against the Patriots and then um, the, the way that he played against the Chiefs, where they didn't lose that game. They didn't failed to advance to the AFC championship game because of the way Josh Allen played. It was because they literally could not stop. Their defense could not stop um, the Chiefs over 13 seconds in the end of that game. Um, yep. So you just, that you're, we're making a bet here, you know, and I am, I picked Josh Allen as my preseason, um, my preseason pick to win the MVP as well. You're, you're betting on him making that leap and to continue and continuing to ascend with a new offensive coordinator. Um, but I just, I like the infrastructure there. I like the team that they build around him. I like Stefan Diggs, Gabe Davis, uh, you know, who caught like a gazillion touchdowns in that div- divisional round game against the chiefs. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really hard. I mean, I think I'd love to do some sort of like statistical analysis of how often the preseason picks actually win the Super Bowl because the best team on paper in early September almost never is the best team. Um, But if you're going to make your, we have to make these picks this time of year. It's hard to go wrong picking with picking the best quarterback. And right now I I think that Josh Allen is going to get into that, into that level. Jenny, um, independent of, uh, of like their their news, uh, independent of the news that happens with them away from the field, um, how how interesting do you find what Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers will be doing this year? Uh, again, both both are playing for teams that um, have pretty short odds when it comes to you know getting to the conference championship or winning the Super Bowl, and obviously in Brady's case, he's I think he's forty four. I mean, um, pretty remarkable that he's still there. Uh, these are the two most famous players in the league and they, they are legitimately on teams with a shot. Yeah. I mean, what's going on with Tom Brady and we don't know all of the details, but just the whole bigger picture of him retiring and then unretiring, you know, the old Bill Parcells saying, right? Like once you think about retiring, then you're retired. You're retired. So, and we probably are never going to know exactly the motivations for him to make the decision to come back or what that, month period was like, or or maybe he'll tell us, you know, in a podcast with Jim Gray or, you know, on, on docu-series or something. But um, I think it's one of the more fascinating, like, turns, right? I mean, I, I remember the day, you know, the retirement news breaks and then, you know, trying to chase that down. And then all of a sudden he's back. So, I mean, I, I don't know that... Yes, we've seen retirement and unretirement before, but because it's Brady, everything just carries more magnitude. Um, And yeah, I mean, Aaron Rodgers is always fun to watch. And I think I haven't followed exactly everything that he has said on podcasts and different things this summer. So I've seen enough of it, but strictly speaking, on he, the he field, got a tattoo. He got, he got a, a tattoo. tattoo that's the, um, that's trying some different, um, different things. So I'm not exactly sure what to make of his mindset going into the season, but I do think 
his relationship with the Packers has also been one of the more intriguing storylines over the Definitely. past few years. Yeah. I, I in, in many, I mean, forgetting about Aaron Rodgers and like what you think of him and, uh, Man, you can do a whole pot. I mean, I'm sure the Ringer has done 47 podcasts on that. The the Packers figuring out a way to rehab that relationship is kind of an amazing management um, turn, Lindsay. Like, like we're not so far removed from like I'm never playing for the Packers again. Trade me, and now the guy is gonna I think clearly retire as a Packer, and they were able to pull that out. And so, and they're gonna be extreme like. Financially committed yeah. to him for yeah, quite a while, like, but, probably but, long after he actually. It's retires. amazing though, because yeah. like, do you? I mean, we went through a months of like, where is this guy going to be traded to? What teams want him? What's like? In many ways, I mean, it's it's not a perfect parallel, but there was so much copy about what's fair compensation for Aaron Rodgers in the way we just went through what's fair compensation for Kevin Durant and who was not traded by the Nets, and so I have to give the Packers credit, like they. I don't know what they did to sort of make it work, but they 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 gave him a shit ton of money. That was part of it. Yeah, that's true. But I'm just saying, like, the reality of the NFL is, like, you cannot lose a franchise quarterback. History tells you once you lose that player, you're done for that many years, and they kept them. As much as of a headache or as a, you know, whatever you have to deal with to deal with Aaron Rodgers, like, they kept them and they're irrelevant teams. Yeah. I mean, that's the case or part of the case for Matt LaFleur is why he, um, you know, should be a legit coach of the year candidate. He probably should have been last year um, and why he should be moving forward. I think now that I'm an editor, literally all I do is now just plug my writer stories, go read Kevin Clark's 7,000 word Matt LaFleur profile from, uh, I think it published late last month where he really got into all of this about why Matt LaFleur doesn't get enough credit just because everybody says, Oh, he's got Aaron Rodgers. Of course, he's going to win a lot of games, but it's way more complicated than just, you know, yeah. ah, you're calling plays for one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. It's like, no, you actually have to manage one of the most mercurial players in NFL history and also, you know, deal with, uh, you know, losing Devontae Adams and a lot of the other stuff, you know, all the injuries that they've had on their offensive line and replacing David Bakhtiari and all this stuff. So um, it, it is really, really interesting. And I guess just to chime in on Brady too, I mean, it's going to be the one of the most fascinating stories because I think, they're also a really good team on paper. I mean, I think if you were going to look at the NFC and just say top to bottom, one through 53, I'd take the Bucks roster over anybody else in the NFC. Um, you know, that assumes that Brady at age 45 is going to be like Brady was at age 44 yeah. when he was second in MVP voting and had a really strong case to win the MVP. Um, you know, we just assume that Father Time's not going to catch up to him this year and Maybe he never will. I don't know what he watch. Would watch out for that offensive line, though. It's beat up. That might well, catch up. Well, yeah, to Brady, but although right? you know, over the course of his career, Brady has one of the things that Brady does best is um, help Release. out his offensive line. He gets yeah, rid of the ball so quickly, and you know, yep. maybe that will take away a few of the. You know, there was a they, they had a lot more deep uh, downfield passing gate, you know, explosive downfield passing over the last couple of years in in Tampa than he had over the last few years in New England, partially because. They didn't have the offensive line and the the weapons in New England over the last few years. So maybe that changes a little bit. Maybe he does have to get rid of the ball faster and they have to, you know, do do a lot more short intermediate passing just to account for that this year. But, you know, Brady has done that before and has succeeded at doing that before. So, um, yeah, I mean, he, he's going to be somebody that we're writing and talking about and just there's so many layers to it. And I know this is something that you deal with, Richard, a lot is like, how do how do we talk about or how do broadcasters especially 
talk about this stuff because the Brady stuff is so layered. Um, it's all involved at, you know, everything that happened with the tampering you're, you're not, stuff. You, and, you know how, the, yeah, the, the NFL rights holder partners. And now he has a deal with Fox. Come like, on I mean, it's Yeah, just, I mean, you you are, I, I, you already know how they're going to, first of all, I'm not saying you shouldn't genuflect on Brady. He's the best player in the history of the league. But rare, rare has there been critical analysis of Brady on the field. If you think these guys are going to go off the field, no chance. And Fox, like the Tom Brady's future employer, I, yeah, we're not probably going to hit any off-season issues with yeah, Tom. Yeah, we're, we're on, not going to uh, be talking about his yacht Fox meetings network. with Stephen Ross on. Uh, yeah, no, none of that. No, his, no, no, uh, no none of that. I do, Lindsay, I, I do want to ask you this, and then Jay, I'll go back to you, Jenny. The Broncos are like interesting to yeah. me because, like, if you're in New York, uh, Jenny, I don't know if you feel this way. The Broncos always feel like this, like, kind of remote, like fascinating NFL team. They're in like the middle of the Rockies or whatever, right? They're always, or they have a history, they had a history of being incredible. And then they went through a little bit of a down cycle, but you never as a New Yorker really get a great feel for them because they're in this weird time zone. You know what I mean? Like they're always on opposite, like the Cowboys. Yeah. And I've been to Denver. It's beautiful. I would live there in a second. So I'm certainly not knocking Denver, but I never really could get a feel for that franchise. Now, like Russell Wilson comes there. So all the NFL writers who live on the West Coast that I read, it's like this is like the, such an exciting story for them. Well, you know, will Russ Cook in the Rockies and all that stuff. But I have no feel. Like I I, I never really had a great feel for Russell Wilson with the Seahawks. Um, and I don't really have a great feel for him with the, the Broncos. What do you think? Like is this – do you think this move like vaults Denver into like Super Bowl – conversation like what's your because you're you yeah. live there so you yeah, got a sense I live of like right down this well not right down the street I'm like a straight shot to the Broncos facility down in the suburbs so um yeah I live close um yeah it's it's really interesting I was actually just messaging with one of my coworkers that none of us really know even what the Broncos offense is going to look like um, exactly. because he didn't play a snap in the preseason. They were, you know, we know that they're going to do a lot of like outside zone. They're bringing in that part of like, that's what their running game is going to look like in their offensive line blocking schemes. But then there's this idea of like, Oh, it's going to be what Russ ran in Seattle, but like Russ wanted out of Seattle because he felt like he was too you know restricted within that offense. So it's, this huge mystery and look, they'll, they'll play Monday night. I don't know exactly when this is going to publish, but if maybe we'll have seen, you know, we'll have seen what the Broncos offense looks like at least in one game. Um, but I will say at least from like a relevance factor, I mean, the, the Broncos uh, were very, very relevant uh, nationally during the Peyton Manning era, those four years. And even shortly before that, because of Tim Tebow made them highly relevant as well, just more of like a curiosity and less of like a, this is a football team to be reckoned with. But, you know, during the Peyton Manning years, they were always on prime time. They were always in those national windows True. and, um, you know, Peyton kind of brought them back to a prominence that hadn't really existed since the John Elway um, the John Elway years. Um, and now there is this feeling of relevance again. And I think that was one of the hardest things over the last, the previous five seasons for, you know, people who work for the team and like longtime fans and stuff is that, you know, the Broncos fans, despite kind of being in this weird, we're in our weird little mountain time zone outpost here and no, nobody ever knows what time it is in Denver. And, you know, the, the games aren't <laughs> on the, in, in the national windows. Cause they'll be on it. They're two twenty five local, which is awesome. I will, I will die on the hill that mountain time zone is the best time zone for live sports. Um, if you 
Because you can go out afterwards. It's, There's a lot. To, it's yeah. perfect. The game, Sunday games yeah. start at 11. So like you can go to brunch, you can go to church, whatever you want to do. Games are over yeah. by 9.15. It's great. Like it's That's perfect. Nice. Like you can go to bed, yeah. you can get up for work the next morning. You're not, if you if you have a normal job, which we do not, but conceivably you right. have a normal job. It's not hard to, you don't have to stay up till 11.30 to watch a primetime football game on a Sunday night or a Thursday night or a Monday night. Um, but anyway, I, I digress. But all of a sudden now the Broncos like, you know, they'd fallen out of relevance. Like nobody was talking about them. They were, they were not good, but they were also not like spectacularly bad. I mean, they were just boring, uninteresting. Um, they were still selling out their games, but they, 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 just, they just weren't relevant to the NFL discourse. And now all of a sudden they have a new owner who is now the richest owner in the NFL. Yep. Um, really, really, really deep pockets. Now they have a quarterback who is going to make them, um, relevant they have the full complement of primetime games starting week one monday night football russ's return to seattle which will be yeah uh, buck and aikman's debut on monday night football it's a big it's game it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a huge game we're also yeah. gonna have the manning cast uh doing that yep. game which will be which will be pretty fun because you know russell and russell's been spending a lot of time with peyton manning who still lives here uh he he, he lives here in denver his kids are in school here and stuff so yeah. they've gotten really close and spent a lot of time together so it'll be I don't think Peyton will ever actually say anything like revelatory. You know, he very much keeps that like the uh, fraternity of quarterbacks, like very, very sacred. And he's not going to like reveal any secrets, but uh, it will. I, I'll be watching both. I'll be flipping back and forth. I think between both broadcasts on Monday night. Um, but when you ask if like, if it's going to be enough, my question since the day that they made this trade was you give up two first rounders, two second rounders, which you had to do. The Broncos absolutely had to make a major, major quarterback move. They could not stay in this Teddy Bridgewater, Drew Locke, Joe Flacco, Case Keenum quarterback carousel that they've been on for five years. Right. Um, but you do that move, and now maybe you have the third best quarterback in your own division. So that's the question. Like, you do that. It does it. Is it enough to not just make you a Super Bowl contender? Is it enough to make you a contender within your own division? And the Broncos have not been relevant in the AFC West since Peyton Manning retired. So before anybody wants to start talking about Super Bowls, like they should be talking about like, can you beat the Chiefs? They haven't beat the Chiefs mm -hmm. since week two of the 2015 season. Um, they have not been wow. competitive really with the Raiders over the last couple seasons. So it's a big leap to say going from last place in the AFC West to Super Bowl contender. Like, let's just see if you can compete with Patrick Mahomes, Justin Herbert, and Derek Carr uh, throughout this season before you start talking about Arizona in February. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. All right, Jenny, Lindsay referenced Joe Flacco. So I'm going <laughs> to ask you about the New York teams. 
Uh, by the way, Lindsay, you know how you said you can like do stuff uh, uh, after games? If you're an East Coast tennis fan, you're up till 2.50 a.m. watching the yeah. U.S. Open. The, the so only downside I, I, here is that those are, you know, sometimes there's matches that are at like 3 a.m. here if you want to watch like the Australian Open or Oh, yeah, else. that's true. But, okay. but for like good. American professional sports, you can't beat the that's mountain great. zone. All right, Jenny, you've covered both the Jets and the Giants. Um, I mean, they have just not been relevant in the league, it feels like, for a while, which, trust me, the league is not happy about because if you can even get one New York team to be relevant, it really does have an impact on viewership. Like, that's just on sheer population size alone, it would make a big difference. Um I've, you know, I feel like you can't really judge drafts for a couple of years. It looks like the Jets had a decent draft, but like none of us know. We're not going to know this. Um, it feels like, again, like long years for New York football. You live there. Do you, are you, where's your optimism level stand when it comes to the Jets and Giants? Man, I don't know, Richard. You know, my old colleague, Connor Orr, who I worked at the Star Ledger and Sports Illustrated with, we had this recurring segment on our podcast, like the fall and winter of despair for New York football, because <laughs> it's just been it's funny. so bad for so long. And like you said, neither team, right? And living in New York, you always want there to be good stories nearby. And the last several years, it's been, okay, like by October, maybe early November, you know, there's not really much going on. I think the reality is both teams still have a lot of roster work to do. And I think you see that in the public comments from both teams, right? Like, I think you, you see the Giants leadership kind of, you know, signaling to their fans like, okay, this might take a while, which is like what you do when you know that the roster still needs a lot of work and you don't want to get too much criticism in your first year. And the Jets roster still needs a lot of work. And we still don't know if Zach Wilson is going to be successful. And now his debut is, you know, delayed because of his injury. Um, So I don't, again, have high hopes again for them this year. Um, The NFC East is always wide open. So maybe the Giants have a little bit of a better shot there. Um, But the Jets are in a tough division and, uh, you know, they see that, you know, the Bills have had a rebirth with Josh Allen and the Patriots are always going to be the Patriots, even with Brady gone. So, you know, it may be another fall and winter of despair, Richard. Oh, not, I think you're right, Jenny. All right, let me leave you with this. Neither of you are going to, neither of you, I think, ever want to go back to beat reporting again, nor should you. It's just, that is not the life of, uh, of uh, you know low resting heart rates and <laughs> and, and uh, you know lack of Xanax. That said, I do want to ask you both if I could grant you one team to cover this year, whether you base it on like uh, you think they're going to be successful, whether you base it on like the people on the team and ownership is interesting, or even if you want to base it on something as ridiculous as I would love to cover a team in perfect weather. So I'm going to choose, you know, the uh, LA charge or something like that. What would Lindsay, I'll start with you. And then we'll end with Jenny. What would be your team? If I could grant you like Lindsay, I'm giving you one year Schefter kind of housing. You can live in whatever place you want to live. What's the team you want to cover? Okay. So I guess one caveat, are we assuming that we'll get access, the type of access that we want or that we need or like within yeah, the existing since this, structure? Yeah, no, no. So this <laughs> is, this is my so decision this, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. This is fa- since this is like fantasy booking, sure, sure, sure. You, you'll get the access you want. To. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'll take, I mean, I guess there, there's two, right? I mean, I, for, for me, I think, okay. that, you can take I think two. there's two. Um, you said the chargers and I think the chargers right. um, are, 
extremely interesting and compelling from kind of a reporter standpoint. One, you're in a huge market. So you have the opportunity to, you know, write about, you know, write in a market that people are interested in, even though the chargers don't have like the lion's share of the interest there. So I think there's an opportunity if you do really cool shit that people are going to read it and you can make your mark. I think a really good example of that is what Jordan Rodriguez has done covering the Rams where, you know, that was a team that was, didn't have like a ton of, interest necessarily and she came in with yeah. just incredible ideas and uh earned a lot of trust within that building to say like i want to tell these cool stories will you help me do that and they've said yeah like yeah let's sit down you can talk to our scouts and all this stuff so i think there's a lot of opportunity with the chargers to do that um and a young quarterback they're going to be good they're going to be interesting a head coach who is thoughtful insightful um yeah, gets, like the, gets the media business um you know, and then you get to live in like, well, you know, they're kind of Orange County, but you, you know, live in, live in Southern yes. California. So that's good. I think the other side of that is Buffalo because they're going to be really interesting. Their, their, their slate of games is incredible. You've got a young quarterback who's going to be really, really fun to cover. You know, they've got fun defensive players. Um, you know, Brandon Bean generally is one of the more um, accessible and uh, insightful general managers to deal with. So you can get a lot of like insight into what's actually going on inside of that building. Um, so I think those are two, two really good spots. And look, I mean, I, you know, if we're talking about like the journalism business and coming up and where you want to land and stuff, covering good and relevant teams is really good for your career. Right. I mean, yeah. I, I'm sure that my career would have gone in a different direction if I hadn't been covering Tim Tebow and then Peyton Manning. Um, And so if you want to be, you know, if you have aspirations to, you know, move up, you want to be somewhere that your stuff is going to get read and you're covering, you know, interesting teams. I mean, I was talking to our, you know, one of of my friends who covers the Colorado Avalanche and his numbers for the athletic Peter Bach. He's incredible. Yeah. Really young, really ambitious, like really, really smart. And, you know, he, he just covered the Stanley cup champion and all of a sudden he's getting all this, like, you know, people are saying, Oh, you're doing so great. And your numbers are great and all this stuff. And he's like, was I that much better? Or were people just reading me more because I was covering the Stanley cup champion? Yeah. Like it's, it's Legit both. Question. I also think he did get a lot better because he's young and he's growing and developing and all that stuff. But um, you want to be covering the, uh, the, the good and relevant and interesting teams, or you want to be covering like a spectacular disaster, <laughs> but, but right. it's more I fun to cover it. teams that are like, you know, fun. You don't, you don't root. You yeah. don't have like, I'm not going to, it's a, no, but it's a I different media like story. The, the, You're not going to go and hoist the Stanley yeah. Cup trophy. But if a team is winning, it affords you, it affords you interesting stories. Yes. It affords you travel. Like that's a real yeah. thing. Jenny, I will say this as someone who many, many moons ago did cover the bills in like negative 10 degree weather in December. Like that is an interesting choice for Lindsay Jones. Like I admire it, but th- having lived in Buffalo in deep January, you may want to think about that one. Um, all right. So, Jenny, what about you? I know you're not choosing – God, I hope you don't choose the Jets or the Giants or the Jaguars. Um, so, I'll give you the same all question. Right. You can take two, you can take two well, if you want as well. I would say that the two that Lindsay picked are the two that I was going to pick, but I'm, sorry. Sorry, I'm not really? going to because now what? we're going to keep things interesting. So, I would say right. one would be the Chiefs because – they were this would-be like dynasty, right? I mean, they almost won two in a row, and they didn't. And then where do they go from here? Like, you can't, you you don't want to squander this opportunity you have to be a dynasty. I always find teams that are like the would-be dynasties to be very interesting, like Seattle, for instance. Um, so I think there could be a lot of storylines there, and you're covering Patrick Mahomes, so that's always exciting. 
The other one, I'm just going to say the Cleveland Browns, because I still think there are a lot of really unanswered questions. Um, A lot of, you know, I can't be in Cleveland for every press conference. And there are so many things that I would love for the ownership or the leaders of the team to answer for answer to uh, be held accountable to. I mean, I think we still haven't really heard an explanation from the team, how, you know, Lindsay talked earlier about the vetting problems that teams do. And I think you're exactly right, Lindsay, when you say a lot of times they don't want to know, they want the version of events that allows them to make the move that they want to make. And that's clearly what happened here, but they bought whole scale of a version of events from Watson. They said they stood behind him they were, you know, believing that he would be a positive force in their community. And then you have the disciplinary officer from the NFL essentially saying that these accounts have credibility, that she felt that the facts established a predatory pattern of behavior. So we still haven't heard a full accounting from the team about, well, that's a very different thing than the story that you believe that allowed you to sign him and trade for him. Right. So I just think there's a lot yet to be answered and asked. And I am interested to see how the season goes because this is a team that wanted to be Super Bowl ready, right? And then you move on from Baker Mayfield because you think you can do better at the position. But now the quarterback is sitting out for 11 games because of more than two dozen allegations of sexual misconduct. So I think there's a lot to cover there. But I don't think I would want to live in either Kansas City or Cleveland weather-wise. But, you know, if I'm living in a nice, nice home, if I'm getting, you know, good accommodations, as Richard has described, that he's apparently offering us um, on his own, on his own dime. Yeah, then great. Schefter, Schefter, Schefter money. So you can, you'll, you, you can set up a gigantic house with uh, the best heating and, and, you know, indoor pools and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm making it good for you both. There you go. All right. These are, those are two good answers. I like that. All right. Um, you guys gave you both gave me a ton of time, and I really appreciate this. I really enjoy this. Jenny Vrentis is a sports reporter for the New York Times, focusing on enterprise and investigations. Catch her work in the New York Times. Follow her on um, on Twitter. Uh, you'll be um, obviously seeing important work from her during the year. Lindsay Jones is a senior editor for the Ringer, where she uh, leads and helps their NFL coverage. I imagine Lindsay will still be. Uh, giving us her opinion on stuff on her Twitter feed, if nothing else. Right. And Lindsay, will you occasionally write or are you, are you done? Uh, I will. I've written one piece so far. I okay. wrote about the AFC West. And you're doing your own, you're, I mean, th- those podcasts are and, so and wildly big network. time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'll be on, um, I guess the little plug I'll be on um, Mondays with Kevin Clark on the slow news day feed. Um, so that'll be my week. These are some big, and then, yeah. Big time downloads, done, Lindsay. You'll hear me on the uh, the Ringer NFL show from time to time as well. So my takes will be out in the world. Yeah, Jenny, <laughs> Jenny, Lindsay's gonna with the with the with the power of the Ringer podcast network. She's gonna become very my, big. Can be and my my daughter's my daughter's NFL picks will be out on the internet. Oh, I love that as well because she's the real star. That's right. That's right. I've seen, yeah, I've seen photos of her. Uh, she is a cutie uh, off to school. Uh, very exciting. All right, Jenny Vrentis and um, Lindsay Jones, please. Uh, Continue to follow and support their work. Uh, they're uh, top class when it comes to what they do. Lindsay and Jenny, thank you so much today for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks, Richard. Yeah. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Lindsay Jones and Jenny Brentis. They gave me a ton of time, and I greatly appreciate it. They are, you know, as I said, two of the best at what they do, and 
mean, great hire by the ringer to bring Lindsey Jones in and New York Times continues to get superior work from Jenny Brentis, uh, who was just a great colleague to have at Sports Illustrated. Hopefully there are conversations in the archives that uh, you will appreciate and enjoy. Previous podcast for this was uh, was a really interesting one. Conversation with Fox Sports NFL producer Richie Zients and Fox Sports NFL director Rich Russo. They're the producer and director for Kevin Burkhart and Greg Olson and were the longtime producer and director for Troy Aikman and Joe Buck. We had a conversation about what they do and what it's like to just how to adjust to a new broadcast team, which they have to do this year. And they gave you great insight into what it's like to to be in the production truck in the NFL. Before that, uh, Michael Grady, new television voice in the Minnesota Timberwolves, and he's Schroff, new radio voice of the Carolina Panthers. How do you land a new pro sports play-by-play job? That was a great conversation, too. Before that, ESPN NHL broadcaster Leah Hextall and uh, and her story. Appreciate her uh, honesty and transparency. Had the uh, the uh, trio at the uh, tennis podcast, David Law, Matt Roberts, and Catherine Whitaker. Conversation with John Wertheim and Scott Price on covering Serena Williams, Secrets of Writing for the WWE with uh, Brian Gortz, who uh, now works uh, for The Rock. And uh, not too long ago, a uh, long form with uh, ESPN chairman Jimmy Pitaro on how he sees the future of that company. And uh, Joe Buck on uh, the late Vince Scully. Should be some things in the archives that you enjoy. Please uh, continue to give them a listen. Appreciate all the support and the interest. My thanks to Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Thanks to everybody at Cadence 13 for their support. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.